welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were very excited to return to the Future Out Loud podcast after our summer hiatus. We sat down with our wonderful, wonderful colleague, Marisa Duarte. Marisa is an assistant professor in the School of Social Transformation here at ASU. I speak of her in glowing terms because those are the only terms appropriate that reflect her personality and her spirit. Uh, I have the opportunity to work with Marisa as part of HS Collab or the Human Security Collaboratory as part of the Global Security Initiative or GSI. You've heard from other GSI people like its director, Nadia Bliss, who joined us for a podcast in the last few months. So if you're interested in learning more about security thinking at ASU, go ahead and check that out from Nadia. In any case, we sat down with Marisa to talk, among other things, about her book that just came out called Network Sovereignty, Building the Internet Across Indian Country. We uh, are, I was so excited that this came out because I've been hearing about it and Marisa actually just joined us having returned from a big conference where she had a book signing and ran out of books because that's how popular it is in the indigenous studies community. And the topic of internet in Indian country is so timely and so important and so valuable right now of all times. We also talk about another book from one of Marisa's colleagues in that uh, academic space. His name is Zoltan Grossman, and his book is called Unlikely Alliances, Native Nations and White Communities Joined to Defend Rural Lands. I mention it now because we do bring it up again in the podcast, and in case you want to check out either Zoltan Grossman's book, Unlikely Alliances, or Marisa Duarte's book, Network Sovereignty, you can find those both from their respective publishers, and they are also available on Amazon, though with not too many copies left. Before we get to the podcast, thank you as always for joining us on Future Out Loud. Please tell your friends about the Future Out Loud podcast. You can subscribe to us in places like iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or Google Play. And you can tweet at us at Future Out Loud. You can also find us on Facebook at Future Out Loud. Finally, you can check out our website, futureoutloud.org. And now on with Marisa Duarte. Hi, Marisa. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. We're so excited. We're back to podcasting. Marisa, you are our, uh, you're the beginning of season two, if that's a thing, because we took a little bit of I a guess break. it is, yes. Yeah. Oh, so cool. welcome. Thank you. I'm also so excited because your book just sold out. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that means, like I said before, but I know that it sold out at the Native American and Indigenous Studies Conference up in Vancouver, British Columbia. So no, I'm sure there are more copies shipping in about a month. That's what I'm aware of, but yeah, that's just super exciting. And your book is called? It's called Network Sovereignty, Building the Internet Across Indian Country. How right. many times have you said that now? That came out so fluently. Oh, good, <laughs> um, probably a lot. Right. <laughs> So, okay, so 
I know a little bit about your work, but what what does that mean? So the I wrote the book because for a very long time now, decades, researchers have been writing about how American Indians don't have access to the internet, but rather than diagnosing it as sort of um, a political, economic, social challenge having to do with the relationship between um, American Indian tribes in the United States. A lot of pre- previous researchers were saying that it was the fault of Indians themselves, that they were too poor, too ignorant, lacked technical capacity, and it wasn't in their culture to embrace technology. And so, I mean, that's just, I, you know, um, being American Indian myself, I, I just was like, well, that's just not really accurate. So, mm-hmm. so I wrote this book, um, and what I did was I researched and uh, different tribes who built out their own internet infrastructure. So what does that mean? Mm. Like, they literally, like, put up, like, Wi-Fi routers? Yeah, they put up, you know, towers. They built towers. They're digging trenches for fiber optic cables. Um, a lot of the stuff that Americans take for granted, we just mm-hmm. expect that Verizon right. will do that for us mm-hmm. or Comcast or whoever. But tribes really can't expect um, the major companies, the major telecoms, to do that for them because a lot of them are in remote locations mm-hmm. or um, they serve populations that the telecoms think will not pay the bills mm-hmm. or right. that there is no demand, you know, sufficient so, demand. So this has been a telecom decision not to go into some of these communities, yes. right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was more important to sort of get on the record stories about tribes who do. Mm. Because not only does it show that it's possible, but it it shows exactly how. Right. You know, how Mm -hmm. can a small, relatively small community get together the capital, you know, the technical talent? um, What are the unique um, challenges they have to work through in building out, in bringing the internet to their people? So you are a member of the Yaqui. Yes, Pasco Yaqui tribe. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that is just to orient us. It's southern Arizona, Mexico. Yes. Is it New Mexico also? Um, there are tribal people who live there, but the original homelands, the sacred homelands, or are in um, right now um, the state of Sonora in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, that's uh, Rio Yaqui territory, so it's an autonomous indigenous territory in uh, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, during the genocide in the late um, 1890s to the early 19, um, like 1910 or so, the Mexican government, uh, Porfirio Diaz regime, had a policy of killing and enslaving Yaqui Indians. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Yaqui people fled uh, north and they'd always hunted this far north and had you know um, trade relationships with tribes up here sure. and so forth but um, actually came across what was then being carved out as the US Mexico border so that um, so they could seek refuge you know and make sure that um, that people would survive in spite of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that was was that where the bulk of your research? No, was? so I actually, um, when I first got the idea, I was living up in Seattle, and mm-hmm. I was working with the Indigenous Information Research Group. So it's a team of all Native and Indigenous um, information science researchers, and that in itself was just like really impressive because mm-hmm. we were mm-hmm. working on things like intellectual property and how that um, relates to tribal laws, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of things. But um, I was actually really impressed with the organization of tribes in the Pacific Northwest okay. and their um, ability to leverage capital for new technology. But the tribes I profiled in this book that I really sort of focused on were the, um, the uh, Southern California tribes mm-hmm. that are around San Diego. There's 19 tribes there. Really? I looked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I looked at Coeur d'Alene, 
uh, which is up in Idaho. Uh, let's see, Navajo Nation, because they have an impressive um, approach to inf telecom infrastructure. Okay. And then, oh my goodness, now I'm going to space it because I'm talking about it. <laughs> It'll come to me. There's one, <laughs> there's, there's there's one, one more. more. There's, okay. Oh, um, Cheyenne River Sioux, mm -hmm. because they oh, also have okay. a really um, unique entrepreneurial approach to telecom. Okay, so, well, let's start then with Cheyenne River Sioux. So what's unique and entrepreneurial about that? So their concept is really unique because they embrace the concept of economic self-determination. Okay. And so uh, what self-determination is, it's this idea that um, tribes, you know, federally recognized sovereign tribes. So just to roll back a little bit um, for folks who don't really know, in this country, in the United States, tribes are actually at a direct relationship with the United States federal government. Right. That's right. This is from the founding of the United States. Mm -hmm. They made treaties with tribes who were the governments that, you know, were here first. Mm -hmm. um, and so states are actually um, sort of a govern government that belongs to the United States government, but tribes, federally recognized tribes, are separate sovereign governments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what that means is that they have um, a different sort of way of getting access to funds. They have a different sort of way of leveraging rights. They have a different set of rights. Um, there are separate governments. So we call that government to government, you know, um, negotiations. Right. Okay. So Cheyenne River Sioux, um, part of that is that we have this concept called self-determination and that is that tribes, rather than, you know, waiting for the United States to sort of dictate what policies will affect them, mm -hmm. tribes govern themselves. Okay. And that's, you know, this is self-determination. But what Cheyenne River Sioux is doing is they're talking about telecom as economic self-determination. It's a way to bring knowledge work to um, Cheyenne River Sioux people who are living out on their reservation in their homelands and who don't necessarily want to relocate okay. you know, to major cities. So by bringing knowledge work to them, you mean effectively working remotely, working virtually? Yeah, yes. yeah working yes. virtually or starting businesses there. Mm -hmm. So yes. they have data digitization company there. They get major contracts, you know, and it's a way to build up sort of um, the knowledge, in terms of knowledge right. work, sort of the knowledge, um, the capacity for knowledge work mm -hmm. in an area that most, I mean, in the U.S., most people think of knowledge work like in Silicon Valley. Right. Sure. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. So, okay, so they're really viewing the uh, construction of the internet as being almost a tool for sort of next generation future employment structures. Definitely, mm. absolutely. So interesting. It but, is very interesting. But I love this idea as well. If you're really connected to a geographical area, you can maintain that, yes. but yeah. still then work outside that area. Yeah, yes. and it, this is incredibly important to think about now because, you know, I mean, we've just gone through Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Right, yes. and one of and it's not over, right? Yeah. Uh, Dapple, the and Dakota Access that, Pipeline. That is, was that Cheyenne River Sioux? Uh, it's Asian? Lakota, yeah, oh, it's Lakota. Lakota. Okay. So a lot, of, and this is that whole region up there is Lakota, okay. right? So, so yeah, it's def definitely part of that area. But that mm -hmm. whole region is very rich, you know, um, as we know, in coal and oil and these mm -hmm. kind of things. And so these companies want to mine in those areas, and sure. lots of people rely on mining these jobs including tribal people mm -hmm. right. and so and even though um, American Indians for the most part the major ethos of American Indian uh, politics is about making sure the environment is there in perpetuity mm -hmm. and that it's mm -hmm. clean you know for um, for everybody right um, 
But this is really important, the idea of digital economies, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because all of a sudden, this is an opportunity to sort of maybe move people away, train them away mm -hmm. from dependence on oil work or coal, mm -hmm. right. you know, right. and into another kind of work. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. And maybe promoting that notion of sort of preserving the earth for now and for the future right. and being a steward in a way that is also sustainable for one's household. That's right. right? That's right. Right. So, and these are all, you know, these are all um, conversations that lots of people are having across Indian country, you know, um, who are interested in really investing in digital economies. Uh -huh. um, and it's not without its challenges, right? Sure. We worry about things like intellectual property. Mm -hmm. We worry about um, cyber squatting. We worry about appropriation. And so, you talk know, about what what do you mean by cyber squatting? Cyber I, I feel squatting, I should yeah. understand that. Yeah, so. <laughs> so this is kind of a it's a concept that you know it's um, so what it is is that people will mine domain names. They'll use certain yes. spiders and, and to just sit on them. Yes. Yes, yeah. and just sit on them, yep. right? And yeah, I mean, yeah. And so we think about things like that. Yep. Um, uh, again, the intellectual property issue, you know, lots of people are interested in digitizing indigenous mm -hmm. knowledge. Right. And that has its own suite of issues in terms yep. of, well, what if we give, it's one thing if you have sort of outsiders who want to commodify, mm -hmm. you know, for example, like seed banks or pharmaceutical companies or something, they come into native communities and find a unique use of, you know, herbs or something uh -huh. or plants. Yep and they want to commodify it and none of that goes back to the tribe. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's one way that indigenous knowledge, you know, is shaped by digitization okay. efforts. However, there's another way, right? And that is when native people decide to digitize their own knowledge right. uh -huh. and make it available for educational uses or decide to make small businesses on the basis. And it's, so then it's all about having to uh, make sure that intellectual property and commerce and also um, creativity are not stifled for the tribal community. Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Super interesting. So uh, I have a couple of pragmatic questions. Yes. <laughs> One, in the same way that, uh, for example, a company in the UK might have a .co.uk. Yeah. Um, do do websites originating on tribal lands have a like Don't dot mean. like Navajo? Yeah. Dot, like how does that work? Yeah. So um, there is a designation. It's a domain name designation. Um, mm -hmm. NSN.gov. And some tribes use this and some don't, you know, and so... Is that like a Native Sovereign Native Sovereign Nation? Nation. Mm. Is that yes. <laughs> so you asked the right question. Yes. Okay. NSN.gov. So it's like, so my own tribe has Pascoyaki NSN. Dot NSN.gov, right? Okay. But there, there are ongoing conversations about, you know, would... Um, would we be able to get domain names sort of, as you mentioned, at mm -hmm. the top level, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So it would be like Hopi.gov, sure. you know, or, um, or would it be a completely separate one like .hopi? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Yes. At Hopi, yes. Because right? doesn't .gov still, like, that filters, ultimately that sort of quote means yeah. that it's the United States government. Exactly, yeah. right. Okay. So could, would we eventually reach one where it's like, you know, Hopi or just Navajo or, mm -hmm. yes. or whatever? Yep. Those, so those are important conversations that are being had. Um, it actually came up about four years ago now. I think, I do believe, no, it's been about three years at the Tribal Telecom um, uh, Summit um, mm -hmm. 
this was a group of very dedicated people who are of entrepreneurs, of people working in government, tribal officials, mm -hmm. who um, were really, really interested in making sure tribes are able to build out their own internet infrastructure. Right. Okay. So we had a conference here in Phoenix, and the, the topic came up, you know, um, do we need to go to uh, the World Society of Information Systems yep. and start lobbying there? Do we need to make sure that tribes always have a seat at the International Telecommunications Union? Mm -hmm. Because as sovereign entities, they have a right to be there. Right. Yeah. right. You know, every single year. And Navajo Nation for a long time had been sending Brian Tagaban um, to go sit on the ITU and make sure to represent um, American Indian, Navajo Nation primarily mm -hmm. interests, but when he was able, he would definitely you know, sort of make sure that people remember that American Indian tribes are sovereign nations as yes, well. Yes, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And is, is this movement international? I mean, you're speaking fairly largely about North America at the moment, yes. but how far does it extend out, so, Um There are, you know, so I have not um, expressly researched in specific right. countries, but I do know that the First Nations of Canada mm -hmm. have remarkable have built out remarkable efforts. Right. And right. a lot of um, what that has to do with is that there, the relationship in Canada between industry, so in the United States, telecom is largely private, right? Yes. It's, yes. it's largely a private infrastructure yeah. that's used for the public, and we really worry about this here in the right, US, right. right? But in Canada, it's not that way. Mm -hmm. And so there's much more investment that was made available um, and much more willingness to work with tribes to build out to remote and rural locations. Right. And so, and we can see why, because mm -hmm. Canada has a lot of remote. Of course, yes. It's terrain. mostly remote. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Rural. Right. Yeah. So they really need par to partner with people who are out there to build out in really difficult conditions like mountainous mm. areas yes. and across uh -huh. permafrost and lakes and, and so forth. But Canada, I mean, they have a First Nation satellite network. In, right. You know, and that is just, that's really remarkable. Yes. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. Now, one of the things that I noticed, so I was um, in the Navajo Nation just last week, actually, and it had been several years since I'd been there. One of the things that I noticed was that not only was there Wi-Fi everywhere, there was cell coverage everywhere yes. in a way that, A, there hadn't been. Like, it was a dead, a giant dead zone the last time I was there. And it was probably, I'm embarrassed to say, a decade since I had been to the Navajo Nation in my own, you know, state right. boundaries. But, um, and the cell coverage was better than it was in, say, driving through rural Utah between yeah. national parks. And I thought, well, way to go. And I knew that your book had just come out. And I was like, way to go, Navajo Nation, yeah. for like being on top of it. And how embarrassing, Utah, that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So is that the case now? I have, you know, an N of one experience. Is that the case along? So I guess, has cellular service been sort of bundled with this internet experience? Yeah. Nations? So, well, different, it's, it works differently in different ways okay. uh, in different places. So, because one of the, when we were, I first, I had the honor of working with, again, that group, the Tribal Telecom and Technology Summit. Mm -hmm. And um, at the very first, they started thinking, what are the best practices for building out internet in Indian country? Mm -hmm. And because of all the, um, the differences between tribes in terms of geography, mm -hmm. capital, um, um, all sorts of things. Um, they we so we quickly realized that every tribe ultimately will build out their own solution. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but Navajo Nation is really a great 
model. And part of the reason what they did is that the tribe itself, as part of the government, has control over the infrastructure, okay. but they allow for um, a competitive com you know, competition right, okay. between different ISPs, internet service providers. Oh, okay. And so those ISPs then offer different bundles in terms of landline, cell, different kinds of internet access, just like here in the, you know. And we're talking like, Comcast, Verizon. Or local ones, or yeah. Local, okay. So there's a great one um, out there that I'm a real advocate. I, I really appreciate their work called Sacred Wind Communications. Okay. And it's actually not owned by Navajo Nation. It's not owned by um, uh, any native entity. However, it is moving toward a cooperative model. Okay. It was started by John Badal, um, one of my favorite um, entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Um, he worked for years for one of the major telecoms, and when he retired, he drove up, much like yourself, drove up to this region and was like, hey, there's no coverage out here. And kids have to sort of bus miles and miles away to get to school as young as right. five years old. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going really far, and what if something happens? There's no way to call home. Right. Right? So he started working up on um, how would we build out something up here that's affordable mm -hmm. for rural, not only native, but also rural people sure. who live out there. And he largely employs um, native and especially Navajo employees. Mm -hmm. Requires that everybody learn to speak Navajo so mm -hmm. that they can awesome. go out and do home, you know, home service. Um, and um, he's beginning to move to a model where they're continually training people from Navajo Nation, so that the the, the talent is there. Right. You know. Right. So there's lots of examples like this, and part of that, na the reason Navajo Nation has been able to do that is because they have such a huge land mass. Mm -hmm. Yes. So they need to be able. So I guess one of the questions is, how does that then scale to smaller communities? Exactly. Yes. So um, there's different models. So um, out in the Southern California tribes, this is 19 tribes, checkerboard reservations mm -hmm. that are right around San Diego. Right. And San Diego, you know, is pretty wealthy. You know, I mean, um, we typically don't expect to not have coverage uh -huh. in the city yeah. of San Diego or in the, the areas around it. Mm -hmm. However, if you've driven around on the outskirts, you can see there's lots of these canyon lands and uh -huh. boulders and, yep. and all of that disrupts line of sight technology. Mm -hmm. And internet is still a line of sight technology. We need towers that can sort of right. beam yeah. down. So um, what they've done out there is that some tribes provide their own, they have their own sort of um, arrangements with Verizon or Comcast, whoever. Okay. But others who are particularly remote mm -hmm. or who are not gaming tribes and can't afford those large mm -hmm. bills, they sign on with the network backbone that was created out of Apollo Reservation. And it's called the um, TDB Net, Tribal Digital Village Network mm -hmm. Backbone. Okay. And that one is made on a tower that's situated high up over the mountains in these strategic locations. And they use that and a combination of wireless mesh mm -hmm. to reach these more remote, right. smaller right. communities. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, yeah, <laughs> it's really exciting. It's it really is, impressive. Yes. It is yeah. impressive. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's all solar power too. There's solar and wind power. What? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I so, love that. So, yeah. so one thing that intrigues me here is I get the sense from what you're saying that there's something other than just the profit motive here. I, because we started off talking about the big companies not thinking it was worth their while to go into these these regions. And now you're having communities and entrepreneurs develop things which are clearly profit-making, they're for profit. Right. But profit isn't the only thing that they're looking for with their bottom line. That's right. Yes. That's absolutely right. And, and the other thing that's really important about that is that, and this is what I'd like to write about a little bit more and learn about a little bit more, um, is how do different governments and tribes um, and corporations or companies sort of decide how what is 
what is our profit-making goal here, right? Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And how much are we going to invest back into the community yes. that yeah. we want to serve? Yes. So even those groups that are that are making profits off of it, a lot of them are putting it right back into training, right? Or they're trying to diversify the business portfolio of their particular tribal community. Yes. Um, a lot of them are investing in media labs for the youth, okay? So oh, that they can do computing classes and get their own Cisco certifications eventually. Mm -hmm. um, um, a lot of them are investing in arts and language, mm -hmm. you know, and history, um, using other, bridging into other kind of technologies mm -hmm. like GIS mapping for tribal sovereignty goals and yep. natural resource management. And so it's really, that to me is the really exciting stuff. It's what people build on top of it. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But you've got to have that infrastructure there in the first place. Yep. And that mm -hmm. brings up this issue, I, which I find fascinating on the, the basic human need or human right for digital access. Yeah. And I think it's only in the last probably five years or so that things have really flipped there, yeah. where we've seen this as a privilege or an option, mm -hmm. and then suddenly going over to something where you can't really operate in this world to your full potential if you don't have that digital infrastructure. That's And that's right. where the need comes in. Yes, and it's important, it's really important the way that you just expressed it, I really appreciate that, is that it's also not just about basic access, mm. that it's about flourishing for the future, right. Yeah. right? Right. Because a lot of the arguments now in terms of, you know, the FCC and so forth, they provide, um, you know, basic landline mm -hmm. kind of access for 911 coverage, which is important. <laughs> right. But, but, but there's so much more than just 911 There's so much access. more than that, yes. exactly. And we really... Um, I mean, I personally think that it's like, okay, here are our basic human rights, but that not, that should not be where we stop. Right, right. Right? right? Yes. Um, yeah. Well, you know, we're still having a conversation as a nation right now about whether health is a right or a privilege. Right. So <laughs> it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around the notion that we are going to you know, come together around the idea that digital access is a fundamental human right, mm. like if yeah. health is questionably oh, uh, right, a fundamental right, right. human mm -hmm. right. So I guess one of my questions for you, and this is again going, this is the day of exposing all of my many, many ignorances. Um, <laughs> but so I, I believe that, uh, members uh, or residents of tribal nations mm -hmm. um, can vote in federal elections or they can vote yes. in federal elections mm -hmm. in the United States. So they are politically have a voice as a uh, you know as part of their sovereign nation and also as part of the United States in congressional districts, etc. Right. Um, how, what's the, and I'm going to ask you to make a gross overgeneralization okay. now. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, do people in sovereign tribal nations or native sovereign, na sovereign native sovereign nations? Nat yes, yeah. yes. Do they vote in, I mean, in their sovereign elections and do they vote in federal elections? Yes. And how, are they, how are they participating in these conversations? So this is, I, um, I'm really glad that you asked that question because for a number of reasons. Okay, so first of all, um, American Indians, when you belong to a federally recognized tribe, you don't lose your status as an American citizen. Right. And so we vote as individual American citizens. Uh -huh. Um, however, when we want to appeal as members of tribes mm -hmm. to Congress, we have to send, that happens through a different set of mechanisms. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, tribes are do not have the right, for example, 
to vote as a tribe, as a sure. people. Like, you know, we don't have um, um, that particular capacity. You can't be like, and the Navajo Nation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. okay. So, um, but, and so that's important. And the reason why is because, um, so we organize, the tribes organize under groups in the United States, such as the National Congress of American Indians. Okay. And NCAI then sort of brings together all of the tribal councils, uh, members and delegates that individual tribes elect, mm-hmm. you know, people mm-hmm. within tribes elect, brings them all together regularly and they talk about some of the major issues affecting Indian country like telecom mm-hmm. and health and all the things that you've indicated, business and commerce and, right. and sure. education, all these things. Um, and then um, that group does a lot of work lobbying and working sure. with uh, different policymakers so that they mm-hmm. can learn how American Indians in their uh, districts or regions are being affected by national policy. Okay. So it's a really complicated sort of um, uh, situation. However, we have this other issue in Indian country, and it has to do with this old thing called colonization, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has yeah. to do with this, the fundamental injustice um, that uh, is the beginning of this country for American mm-hmm. Indian people, all those broken treaties. And so what um, I did a study um, last, uh, this past spring mm-hmm. um, with one of my colleagues. She's a very talented computer scientist, uh, Morgan V. Hill Hayes. She is now going to be up at Northern Arizona University. Okay. Uh, she has been looking, trying to figure out ways to compress data mm-hmm. so that um, internet data can travel over radio right. spectrum right. Yes. for okay. these remote tribal communities. Mm. She's extraordinarily talented. Mm-hmm. We also worked with Nikki um, Dishini Parkhurst, at, who is a longtime organizer, activist, and also very educated um, uh, Navajo and uh, Standing Rock Sioux woman, oh. you know, who's really been advocating for um, policy changes and rights for American Indians for a long time. Okay. So the three of us worked together and we sort of asked a lot of, you know, we asked a number of people, what are the top Twitter accounts that you follow mm-hmm. for Indian politics and news in the United States, American Indian politics and stuff. So they gave us, you know, their list and we um, opened up, you know, as we as we call it, the fire hose of Twitter. We collected right. all these tweets. Mm-hmm. We collected about 11,000. And we wanted to see if there was anything in there related to the um, early, the spring, the U.S. presidential election. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, is, could we see any trends about Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump at that time? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. We saw all the top sort of activist tweets and, and policy and rights tweets mm-hmm. had to do with platforms that none of the candidates were talking oh, about. Oh, interesting. They were yes. completely off target. They were completely with, yes. off target. Yes. They were talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, which is the high rate mm-hmm. of brutality against um, native women, particularly in borders, U.S., mm-hmm. Mexico, mm-hmm. and U.S., Canada. They were talking about police brutality in okay. native communities. Um, let's see, they were talking about uh, um, stereotypes and racism, right. okay. the mascot issues and cultural representation. Yes. And almost none of this had to do with what the presidential candidates yeah. at the time were talking about. So that really showed us something very interesting about how when we build out these internet infrastructures mm-hmm. and provide people with access to these kind of sort of semi public semi-corporate platforms like Mm -hmm. Twitter and Facebook and whatever, Mm -hmm. that um, the things that they're going to talk about as important for policymaking in their communities may differ wildly. Right. 
from what is happening on, you know, sort of the political showmanship. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But from your perspective, does that then give them a voice or are there issues associated with that disparity? So there's incredible issues. Yes, it yes. gives them a voice, right? Because yes. there's this sense of consciousness together. Right. Like, oh, right. you you over there way in that tribe on the West Coast mm-hmm. is struggling with the same things those of us on right. the East Coast okay. are struggling. So there's this solidarity happening, mm-hmm. you know, and what's really wonderful about it too, I think of it as the digital creativity. So many young people who maybe are not eligible to vote yet, mm-hmm. they're like 15, 16, and whatever, participating uh-huh. in those spaces as well. Yes. Okay. So that's really exciting. Um, however, and then we also can spread news when it's not being covered by the major right. news channels, yes. right? Okay. Much yes. like Standing Rock, it was, people in Indian country knew about that way before, like right. months before it was I'm picked sure. up. Yeah. But, um, but on the other hand, we have this other problem, and that is that fundamentally the United States government is not ever really interested in giving back our land. Right. They're not mm-hmm. really ever interested in honoring those treaties. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not trying to be provocative. It's just sort of, it's like this is the state of reality in the present, our legal political reality. Mm-hmm. And so what we have happening is that we've got tribes and tribal people and activists building voice with each other. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the United States government is going to provide channels for listening. Right, yes. 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 And yes. so now we've got this, It's but we wouldn't have known that unless we... Uh, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So it's it's one of these things where you actually take a step forward, but then the vista opens up of all the other problems and challenges. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually there's a, a, a number of Australian researchers who were realizing this, mm-hmm. working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Indigenous mm-hmm. Australia, yes. that they were becoming very organized. You know, and yet the Australian government was not really providing channels for listening or mechanisms for listening. Um, Yeah, and so then it's like, okay, well now what do we need to do to open those doors? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we struggle with, certainly here at ASU and as a not indigenous person, so how to even approach this? I mean, I think that there's, so, you know, at ASU, we are slowly crawling back from a giant injustice right. that, you know, committed against the Havasupai. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, okay, as a non-Indigenous person, you know, how, like, how can I as a researcher or I as a citizen, right, say, yes, I would like to engage with indigenous people, and I think that this is important, and we should build mechanisms for native people to Mm -hmm. engage in the sort of, you know, whether it's mainstream media or Twitter or Mm -hmm. whatever we want to to sort of pinpoint, without saying or being viewed as, ah, you are just going to exert your colonial influence once again. (laughs) Like, how do you even, like, what is... What is one to do? Like, yeah. what's the right? What's the rightest way of the possible right ways forward? So, the, I'm going to plug my colleague Zoltan Grossman's new book. It's called Unlikely Alliances. Mm-hmm. It just our books were published at the same time. We just had a book signing together at mm. the Native and Indigenous but Studies. But did he sell his out too? He uh, well, okay, no, <laughs> he might. His book. I thank you. No, don't go Thank there. you, Heather. Yes. Thank yes. you, yes. Dr. Yes. Ross, <laughs> for that plug. But uh, yeah, so. Um, Zoltan Grossman is a remarkable person. You know, he's non-native, okay, but he has been working for years with native communities on especially infrastructure issues and environmental injustice mm-hmm. in different rural communities, particularly through the upper Midwest and mm-hmm. the Plains. 
And so he's written this book that's asking just the questions that you're asking. Oh, okay. You know, how is, these are unlikely alliances between native people, tribal people, and, um, and white Americans mm-hmm. and white folks mm-hmm. who had, and especially, you know, we have this sort of story going on in the United States of cowboys versus Indians. Yeah. And that white people are cowboys and that Indians are like these savage beasts, right? Mm-hmm. And, they're, and it's just like, all of them carry guns and they're all just like super violent creatures, right? We have this unfortunate narrative. It's very Hollywood. Um, but what Zoltan Grossman has shown is that when it comes to um, rural people working together across unlikely, across boundaries, cultural differences, language, social, political orientations, to um, to get rid of environmental devastation like oil spills, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mining, uranium mining, they can work together in really effective ways, you know, and that has to do with knowing how to build common ground. Right. And so... Um, so I think that that's the first step, is knowing how to build common ground. Okay. And to remember, especially when working with tribes, that this idea of common ground, and I'm referencing again Dr. Grossman's work, he very clearly lays this out. The idea of the commons, you know, this is the English yes. concept yeah, yeah. of the commons, right? The land of the people, yep. the commons. That's Indian land here in the United States. Mm, the yes. commons is American Indian land, right? Yes. Yes. And so when we think about that, it helps us to realize, oh, this is the level that we have to allow ourselves as non-Native people to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge, look at that history. Just go ahead and it's not going to kill you to be uncomfortable for yeah. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to yeah. die. <laughs> and then move, breathe into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's look at what it, like, we know we all want good schools for our kids. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you can speak to your congressional representatives, your municipal leaders, and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, white Americans right now have a certain voice Mm -hmm. that other Americans who are darker skinned and from marginalized groups do not have. Right. And so it's really powerful when white Americans can go to their municipal leaders and so forth and say, have you worked with the tribes in the region? Yeah. Or have you worked with this particular community group? Right. That really goes a long way to saying this is the common ground sure. mm-hmm. in yes. terms of the issues here. Yes. It's very fearless, too. I really appreciate fearlessness also, mm-hmm. like cool. a strong heart, you know? Yeah, one of my colleagues, uh, one of my policy colleagues uh, in the healthcare space in Texas, actually, said in Texas they refer to those as white hat issues, mm-hmm. that everybody can get around it. Like, we want newborn babies to be alive. Right. Like, people generally right, want that right. as a thing. So yes. you can yes. get together behind that, mm-hmm. whether you are, you know, conservative, liberal, white, brown, black, whatever. Right. And so it strikes me it's is that it's those white hat issues. Yeah. yeah. Well, and access to telecom, I think, is, is increasingly becoming one of these. Mm-hmm. So up the Tulalip tribes up in the Pacific Northwest, sort of north of the Seattle area, mm-hmm. you know, they're building out. This, this ring, you know, mm-hmm. is, is a hub up there right now. It's a, back, it's a network sort of structure yeah. to bring access to, internet access to tribe, the tribal folks who live in remote, remote locations up there. But it's not just for them. It's for rural people sure. up in that area who are also affected by the border, the U.S.-Canada border. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so that's one of those, those areas where it's like, you know, we're neighbors together mm-hmm. in this particular landscape. Right, yes. You know? Yes. So, yeah, I think that's something mm. that we can, we can work toward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you besides the second printing of your book? <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So, so, I mean, the next step is to sort of, um, you know, um, respond 
to a lot of the requests that people are, you know, it, uh, you know, asking for what does this mean for my tribe? Mm -hmm. How can I get involved, right? So mm -hmm. I'll probably be doing that for the next couple of years. But then I'm excited because you and I are working through the Global Security Initiative here we at are. ASU. So I'm increasingly becoming interested in cybersecurity in Indian country. Yeah. Cool. And yeah. regimes of surveillance and what that means. Which actually seems so important. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And then, and it's not all, it's not all nefarious when I say cybersecurity to in American Indian groups, they're like, ooh, you know, that's like COINTELPRO, we're being right. spied. And I'm not denying that's true. It is. That's part but of it. That's it's part of it. But it's, yeah, it's also about integrity of systems. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Accuracy of, of information, yes. you know, sure. Um, making sure that, um, you know, uh, digital infrastructures are maintained and that they're working and that they're yes. up to date. And yep. yeah. yeah. So. And then what's the implication for, you know, doing data work? And, yeah. you know, as you know, I think about that from health and yeah. sort of we've been talking about self-quantification for yes. a couple of years now with our little group and yeah okay good yeah very good yeah well this is super exciting and if people want to buy your sold out book so it's on Amazon I do believe it's on Amazon and they it is on Amazon and they should start shipping what they told me they would start shipping in the next three weeks. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. We'll put the link in. Will you yeah. be recording it on, on as an audio book? I think you should. I hadn't thought about that. I wonder who I would get to play my voice. You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it could be translated into Navajo. Into different how languages. how many Navajo books are there on Audible? Now that is a powerful idea. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank for you. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.